Today we're going to talk about the basics of ISO 27001. For anyone wondering how to get ready for a certification or just to learn more about the process, uh, joining us we have, uh, in way of quick introductions, myself, Christian Hyatt. Uh, I'm one of our ISO practice leaders. I'm also a managing director at RISC360. And we have Sawyer. Sawyer, you mind doing uh, quick introductions? Yeah, sure. I'm a manager at RISC360. Um, I oversee a lot of our uh, ISO 27001 implementations. So I work with a lot of different clients and uh, a lot of different types of products that are pursuing ISA certification. Yep, great. So just on in way of kind of what we're going to talk about today, we'll, we'll give a quick background of ISO, talk about its structure, and then we'll walk through kind of how we do implementations and how I think that would work for basically any company. We'll talk about the certification process, um, timeline, efforts that a team can expect, and then Sawyer, I'll do some rapid QA uh, to put you on the spot to see if you can answer all of the ISO uh, questions. So in way of background, so ISO 27001 here in the US is governed by an organization called ANAB. Um, so I guess one of the questions that comes up a lot is what can we expect from an ISO audit? And that, and that really depends on the audit firm. I guess the different audit firms have, um, I guess, different techniques based on the firm's preferences. And that's largely governed by who governs the audit firm, so the auditor of the auditor. Uh, the biggest one here in the US is ANAB. Um, and then there's another large one out of the UK called uh, UCAS. And there's some that are governed by both um, here in the US. Um, and then also key market drivers. So Sawyer, do you maybe want to talk about the marketplace and, and what you're seeing? I know that you're, you're on the other side of this kind of dealing with a lot of, of our customers whose customers are asking for questionnaires and certifications and things like that. Do you want to maybe dive into any of that? Yeah, I have several clients um, who deal with a great, uh, a, a pretty big due diligence burden um, from their prospects and clients. Um, one in particular is in the banking industry. Um, these banks are just constantly asking uh, security questions. They're, you know, even sending auditors on site. Um, and ISO 27001 is really table stakes for those guys. Um, it, there's a lot of uh, those banks that simply wouldn't do business um, with my client if they didn't have that certification. Um, and then when it comes time to answer these questionnaires and uh, go through these various audits, uh, having that certificate also shortens that effort of quite a bit uh, because it, it speaks to obviously all of the ISO framework um, already. And so they, they can kind of uh, get to just their more detailed questions and skip over the more general questions. Yeah, I think over the last couple of years, especially we've seen, you know, ISO requirements be included in contracts. Like I, I can't do business with you unless you have an ISO certification. Uh, SOC 2 is another popular one, but ISO is definitely growing. Um, ANAB also puts out numbers on the number of companies that get ISO certified every year. This isn't every company, but it's based on surveys and it's based on just that one governing body, ANAB. And uh, they put out data from 2006 to 2017. I think they're going to put a new data set out this year. But even three years ago, um, that line was shifting towards vertical and the number of, of, co of companies becoming ISO certified. Another interesting thing that we see is uh, the U.S. typically lags behind in total number of certifications compared to the rest of the world. And I think that's because we have other certification uh, vehicles. 
But even still, like you can look at Germany or Japan or, or and the rest of Europe, and they get far more ISO certifications, yet our numbers were nearly vertical in growth. So my guess is just based on what we're seeing in the marketplace right now that there's probably, you know, we're probably the fastest growing marketplace by far for a number of companies getting ISO certifications. And why that matters for companies out there is because really this is becoming the de facto standard for proving or evidencing that you have a security program in place and it's a common vocabulary. So if you go to one company or another company, you know, what are they going to ask for to get through that sell cycle or to, or to feel comfortable that you have a security program? And there's a high likelihood that it's going to be ISO 27001. So if you're considering, you know, what certification do I go after? Do I take the time and effort to get ISO 27001 certified? The answer is likely yes, because it's kind of table stakes if you want to do business especially if you're a SaaS provider or some type of technology provider uh, and you want to do business with the big companies that are a little more conservative and don't want to take on the risk and want to feel comfortable that you have a security program. Yeah, one one other thing I'll add there, Christian. Um, I know uh, client retention and uh, account expansion is a huge focus for a lot of clients. Um, you know, it's not just new logos, it's expanding as you have with current logos. Yep. Um, this is just as important with those folks. Um, I've seen uh, existing clients that have been clients of of some of my customers for years uh, come back and really uh, ratchet down their due diligence process. And so you you really, uh, if you start seeing this uh, due diligence burden and, and this requirement for an ISO cert from your prospects, you're probably gonna start seeing it from clients and you could even risk a client churn if you don't uh, pursue one of these. Yep, and we'll, we'll talk about it here in a minute too but iso is also one of those standards that people are using to unify their entire compliance program so if you're that risk management professional you know looking for a way to ease the ease the compliance burden on your organization but still have a great security program iso 27001 is a great broad and flexible framework to do that and we'll talk a little bit more of that in a minute so we're going to kind of move on here and talk about just what is what is iso 27001 and, and how is it structured uh, so, Saul, you, you might kind of giving us the run through of like the overview of 27001 framework. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's broken down. Um, if you look at the official ISO documents, um, you'll see two really that uh, that pertain to what we're talking about. Uh, there's 27001 and 27002. Um, so the 27001 document goes into uh, great detail around clauses four through ten. Um, which is really the, the overarching management framework. This is uh, essentially the structure of the program. Um, you'll see things in there like uh, the requirement for the ISMS, uh, risk assessments, internal audit. Um, it, it's basically uh, you know, the, the foundation that the program is built on. And then you'll see something uh, that uh, is called Annex A at the bottom of that document. I mean, it's essentially 14 categories, uh, sections five through 18. I mean, those are all uh, kind of uh, granular controls that a company can implement um, with it's uh, somewhat prescriptive, but it's also somewhat um, loose, uh, meaning that this can be right sized to a company uh, pretty easily. So you, you don't uh, you know, necessarily have to follow it to the letter. Um, it, it's it's each control can really be right sized for you. And just as a note, if you see ISO 27002, that's essentially the uh, detailed uh, Annex A controls with additional implementation guidance in them. Yeah, I think when I usually when I talk to people for the first time thinking about ISO 27001, they're really focused in on those controls. You know, there's 114 controls. I have to do those controls. 
um, where really the audits and the core of the program is clauses four through 10, which is the first half of ISO 27001 that sets up you know, leadership's commitment, the governance structure, like you mentioned, the risk assessment requirement, how you're doing resource planning and strategic planning, all those things. Um, and that, for some reason, that's just the gap in people's knowledge. They don't realize that there's this whole clause four through 10, and that's the he most heavily edit or audited section of the framework when you go through an audit. And we'll dive into each of these sections a little more here. So speaking specifically to, to clauses four through 10, um, this is, I think, where it merits spending a little bit of time. Um, and, and like you said, Sawyer, this really is the core of how you're going to structure your program. So for, uh, I guess, one helpful piece of information is any ISO framework, whether you're talking about a quality audit or, you know, uh, one through ISO 10,000, no matter what framework it is, they always have this concept of the management system. Right? So it's like, how, what, what is the system of management that you're going to use to manage the program in question? Uh, in this case, it's the ISMS, it's the Information Security Management System. Uh, if you're thinking about privacy, another one that just came out is the PIMS, the Privacy Information Management System. So um, another one, a popular one, is the Quality Management System. So this is just a term that you're going to hear when you're being audited or when you're implementing an ISO program. So here it's all about the ISMS. Um, and, and I like the way the ISMS works because it's a nice flow. It really helps you put your program into context and think about how you're going to govern it. Uh, so it starts off with context of the organization. So what are, you'll see words like what are the internal factors? So internal stakeholders that care. Who are the external stakeholders that care? What regulatory requirements? And I, I like that because it forces you to think about, OK, I have a customer that really cares about this. I have regulations I need to meet. I have a board of directors that is requiring certain things. And then it dives straight into clause five, which is leadership. So that's how you're structuring your program. Do I have a CISO? Do I have an information risk council? Do I have uh, you know, appropriate leadership buy-in into the program? That's especially helpful because a lot of times people want to delegate this to a, a, a network administrator or some type of, they, they view this as an IT problem or as a technical problem where ISO says, no, this is a leadership problem. You need leadership buy-in. And then in clause six and seven, you get into strategic planning. So do you have the appropriate resources in place to facilitate the program? Um, is there training? Have you rolled out policies and procedures? Have in clause six is where you'll see the word risk assessment in 6.2. So executing a risk assessment. And then you get down into operations where it talks about planning against your risk assessment. So presumably you've done a risk assessment and that's going to impact how you plan and operate your security program. And then clause nine is doing your own self-assessments. So one of the big things that auditors are looking for when it comes to ISO is this idea of management's con con uh, commitment to continuous improvement. So what they want to see in clause nine is that you have your own internal audit procedures. So you're measuring your program every year at least, and then identifying opportunities for improvement. And then moving on into clause 10, you're actually doing something about them. So there's this life cycle of identifying improvements, improving them and making them normal processes. And that's really the crux of your audit. Uh, I think from my experience, auditors probably spend at least 50% of the time auditing the ISMS, and that really needs to be tight uh, if you want to get certified. Anything else you want to add there, Sawyer? No, I think we'll uh, get into it, but um, you'll see there's different, uh, there's a couple of stages to the audit itself. Um, that first stage is essentially focused on on just this. So we'll, we'll, let's bounce into uh, Annex A or ISO 27002 and talk about the 114 controls. So are you, you, want, you mind giving us an overview here? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
you know, each of these uh, categories kind of gives you an idea of the controls that are involved. Um, some of them only have a handful of controls. Um, some of them, like Section 12, have quite a few, um, as well as like access control. Um, but Section 5 is about uh, your policies. So the way that ISO uh, looks at this, and, and really the way that an organization should view this, um, is you don't really have uh, a program without policy to enforce and govern it. Uh, so typically, we we put together uh, you know a handful of policies um, that create uh, in in conjunction with the clause four through ten uh, ISMS that you referenced earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, we put together several policies that then reference procedure. Uh, policy is you can think of it as management's intent for the organization on how to handle a certain uh, area, um, and uh, the procedure is going to be how the how the company actually executes or uh, enforces or uh, tactically. Uh, operates that control. Um, and so section five is all about how those policies are organized. Um, does the, you know, is, is the business aware of those policies? Are they stored in a central location that can be easily found? Um, so, so there's a, controls around that. Um, and section six is uh, also uh, kind of the, the same there. Um, section seven is human resources security. So ISO looks at this really in, in three stages, pre-employment, uh, during employment and post-employment. Um, so there's just controls that go to each one there uh, to make sure that you're securely um, and appropriately handling, um, you know, screening prior to onboarding, um, you know, enforcing uh, HR controls uh, throughout employment and then uh, during offboarding um, through voluntary and involuntary terminations, um, having controls in place to, to make sure that things are, are addressed there. Uh, section eight is asset management. So. Um, an asset is anything from an employee laptop to a network device to a server that's uh, you know running your application. Um, so yep. there, there's a ton of uh, controls and and arguably one of the more important areas um, is asset management, um, especially given the uh, nature of the workforce right now being mobile. Um, this has become a really uh, big item because a lot of companies uh, depend on their corporate network for security. And so that asset gets plugged into the network uh, the, therefore, it's secure. But now yeah. people are home working on their laptops uh, on their home network, um, and so it's become much more important to protect the asset itself. Yeah, that's being reinforced by other frameworks too, like uh, CIS Top 20 and things. I mean, that's numbers one and two in the Top 20 from CIS. So asset management is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. To your point. Yeah. Uh, number nine, access control. So that's uh, both virtual and physical, um, making sure that um, you know employees are are, are uh, appropriate employees have access to the appropriate areas within the building um, and then also access to everything from your applications to uh, your laptops um, you know every aspect of access throughout the organization is uh, <clears throat> is addressed with the control spelled out in uh, section nine yeah. um, section 10 is cryptography so um, pretty much any organization that's doing anything um, over the internet today any kind of technology is using cryptography um, there's a, a pretty heavy focus on um, one, the policy, and two, how the keys are handled. Um, so that that dives into that um, one area to really think about. There is uh, if you have a compromised key, um, how do you handle that? That's one I've seen auditors really hone in on. Yeah, there's uh, also like the encryption at rest on your laptop and and in transit. So some of the things you'd think of, but the key management is one that that people don't think about. I think when you think about cryptography. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, 11, physical and environmental security. So um, a lot of my clients that are working in the cloud, such as AWS or Azure, 
um, a, a fair amount of the controls from Section 11 um, are uh, essentially the responsibility of that cloud hosting provider. Um, so it's things like, um, you know, are you able to uh, just freely walk in and access the servers or are there controls in place like, uh, you know, scanners, uh, fingerprint scanners, retinal scanners, um, is it in like a locked cabinet um, or, you know, is there uh, climate control, um, fire suppression? There, there's a lot of things handled there, um, but there are still a handful of those controls that can be applied um, even just to an office space. Yep. Um, section 12 is operation security. So this is, uh, <clears throat> Section 12 is an interesting one. Um, I, I see a lot of my clients um, kind of have to think hard about how to implement some of the controls there. Uh, because it's really all about the uh, the way that the the organization uh, operates the various controls. Um, yep. so the, the very first control in Section 12 um, is that uh, operating procedures are documented, um, and and that's something that a lot of my clients say, yeah, well, you know, one department has it here, another department has it there. Um, you know, it, it they're documented. I just maybe not am able to tell you exactly where at the moment. Um, yeah. That's uh, that's kind of a gotcha that I've seen with ISO. Um, so I always advise my clients to create just a single operating procedure guide that has uh, hyperlinks and pointers out to those various procedures. Um, yeah, 12, 12 also has some of those classic security controls. Like if you're looking at these these categories and you're wondering where they are, like malware, like infrastructure change management, uh, backup policy, there, there's some stuff buried in there in ops security. So that becomes quite a large section, as you pointed out earlier. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, 13, communication security. So that's all about, um, you know, data moving um, the, the communications um, of the network, of the applications. Um, it's about making sure that you're uh, securely transmitting data. Um, it's to prevent, you know, man in the middle attacks, things like that. Um, 14 is typically just focused um, not just on uh, code changes, uh, but just uh, change change management in general. Um, 14 has a lot of uh, what we think of when we hear, you know, um, agile development methodologies, right? That's That should have a lot of the controls in 14 uh, baked into it. Uh, but it's really focused on making sure that systems are developed um, and maintained and stood up um, in secure fashions. Yeah, so, one, one thing that I wanted to point out specifically around 14 is, um, to keep in mind that the last version of ISO was released in 2013. So, you know, there's been nearly 10 years since that release. And during that time, most organizations are moving to a DevOps agile development model. So a lot of the words that ISO uses here in Annex 14 is, uh, is, is more waterfall. You can tell that it was built for a different time. So there's some translation that has to happen. To how do you apply that modern development environment to the ISO standard, and you can certainly do it, but sometimes it's not as intuitive as it could be, um, and that's some of the art behind, hey, how does our business fit into the ISO framework rather than just adopting the words that it says? That's right, yeah, I, I think a, a term that I um, have grown somewhat fond of is the, the spirit of the control. Um, yeah. You know, I think that 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 says a lot, right, because the, the spirit of ISO is still uh, extremely valuable to organizations. So in situations where, you know, the terminology may be a little outdated, the spirit is, of the control is not. Um, and yep. I think you see that if you really start reading through. 
Um, section 15 is supplier relationships. Um, said another way, vendor risk management, right? Um, there, there's a lot of companies that are really focusing on this. Um, they're, they're looking at their supply chain and making sure that, you know, those fourth and fifth parties um, in their supply chain are, are at least as secure as they are, um, either because they're proactive um, or because their clients are requiring that of them in their vendor contracts. Um, so we're, we're beginning to see, you know, a heavy push um, downstream. Um, so if you're one of the smaller companies that sells to, you know, mid-tier businesses um, and you've not really been under a lot of due diligence in the past, um, I bet you will in the next couple of years uh, at, at most because of Section 15. Uh, there's a, a pretty heavy focus on making sure that your vendors um, are appropriately managed and risk assessed um, and audited. Um, yep. SOC 2 also just came up with that too. So we're seeing that across the board and frameworks. So about, I guess, a year or two ago, SOC 2 made a major update to their framework with enhanced emphasis on supplier relationships and vendor management. And we're seeing the same thing in ISO and other frameworks. So to your point, Sawyer, this is kind of that circle that we're getting in that you have to do vendor risk management to get certified, which means that your downstream vendors also have to consider their own due diligence processes. Yep. Yep, that's right. Uh, 16 is uh, around incident management. So um, when an incident occurs, um, and, and it, it most likely will, um, are you know clients and employees uh, aware of how to report that? Uh, do you have the uh, capacity, the, the uh, skill set that you need to address that officially? Um, do you have a policy in place governing that process overall? Um, there, there's a handful of things in incident management um, that you, you may already just organically have in place, but there, there's also a handful of things that you may not have thought of until you start reading these controls. So 16 is really, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very useful uh, section because it's one that um, we, we should all be ready to uh, put into action um, because you know we're all hoping we don't, but we'll most likely be hit with some kind of an information security incident. Yep. Um, 17 is around business continuity. So making sure that, um, you know, in the event of a um, personnel being unavailable for an extended period of time unexpectedly or, uh, you know, coronavirus hits, right? Everyone has to work from home all of a sudden for a full month or more. Um, these are things that um, are addressed in uh, Section 17. Um, also, uh, thinking through disaster recovery. So from the technology side, is your application able to recover if it gets hit with, you know, something terrible like ransomware um, or, um, you know, something like that? Um, and then 18 is compliance. So making sure that you're compliant with um, several things, but most importantly, um, client contracts and uh, regulatory um, frameworks that you're subject to. So if you're processing payment information or client health data, uh, yep. focus on PCI or HIPAA respectively. Um, so that's, that's mainly what section 18 is, is uh, making sure that you have controls in place to monitor those various controls from contracts and uh, regulation and to uh, enforce and operate them effectively. Yeah, the other thing buried in 18 is vulnerability scanning and penetration testing. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know why they put it there, but it's also kind of an operation security, but there's uh, sub controls in section 18 around that, uh, which I was surprised to see the first time I read through it. Yeah. Cool, so that's a good overview. Um, I guess I'll point people to resources if you wanna dive in deep on these controls to understand the requirements. Uh, probably your best place to look is ISO 27002. That is the implementation guidance that is paired with ISO 27001. Uh, we also have a white paper on the website uh, that breaks out ISO 27001 uh, into human readable format so that you can ask 
you know questions of your environment we have a whole section in that white paper that breaks out each section and gives you about five or ten questions that you can ask yourself do i have this policy am i doing this um, to kind of do a self-assessment so highly recommend that white paper so let's dive into the implementation process sawyer um, of you know if a company is starting from ground zero and they're trying to think about how do i get a program off the ground all the way through certification um, so in this section we'll talk about what the implementation process typically looks like and then also what the certification process looks like um, from an implementation perspective we, we think about implementation in four steps uh, scoping current state assessment remediation roadmap and program implementation so I'll, I'll dive into scoping and planning so one of the questions that comes up is uh, does ISO apply to my whole organization? I feel like for some reason people have the impression that ISO is a framework that you have to implement in the totality of your organization that it can't be narrow. Um, there's probably some elements like leadership has to be involved. So that's going to be uh, you know a higher level control, but you can scope um, ISO down to you know specific applications, specific locations. Uh, specific processes and people and it's important that you narrow that down and, and how you narrow that down is going to be largely based on what you need to certify to satisfy your customer requirements or your own internal desires um, so what we typically do during that is we come in and do that detailed scoping session and, and perform that strategy with a client um, typically there's clients or client asking for the ISO certification so we'll make sure that we're meeting at least what they want if not more um, and then sometimes companies know that it's not feasible to get you know in the timeline they have the entire company certified so they'll go after a certification in a very narrow scope but maybe more broadly implement iso and then over the course of a couple of years continue to expand that scope for the certification audit um, also for us that's about putting together a detailed project plan identifying all the stakeholders that might be involved educating those stakeholders with orientation sessions like this uh, and making sure that everyone's on the pa same page about what we're going to do it how we're going to do it and what the timeline is um, that's a very important piece there's also some admin stuff uh, that iso requires there's something called an application letter there's a statement of applicability and some other uh, admin documents that we try to uh, fill out in that stage and then once we have a scope and plan, we know what the body of work is. That's when we go and we do a current state assessment. So you want to kind of walk us through this? Yeah, sure. Uh, the current state assessment, um, it for one, it fulfills the internal audit requirement of ISO. Uh, but more importantly, this gives us uh, a, a basically um, a clear picture of the program today. Um, so different companies are, are doing uh, better or worse on different control sets. Um, the point of the current state assessment is to determine where are our gaps today and where are potential roadblocks for certification um, and where are some uh, even just simply opportunities for improvement uh, so our our, uh, our goal here is to come in and assess every aspect of iso against the scope that you've defined in that previous step christian mentioned um, once we're through the current state assessment uh, we we have clear uh, findings uh, we work with management to put together action plans on what we're going to do about these findings um, and commit to due dates, assign owners, things like that. And then we move into uh, the remediation phase. Um, so we put together essentially a roadmap, right? It's, uh, you can think of like a Gantt chart. Um, of This is exactly what we're going to do over the next, you know, six, eight, 12 months, whatever it is, um, in order to close these gaps that have been identified. Um, that is, is key to uh, project managing um, this, uh, this initiative through to completion and success. Um, and then program implementation is essentially the cadence of uh, meetings. It's, 
you know, the checking in with the stakeholders, the uh, control operators, um, folks like that throughout the process to make sure that they have what they need um, to address the things called out in the current state assessment laid out in the roadmap. Um, and it's it's essentially the meat of the program, right? It's putting um, rubber to the road within your organization to affect change that's needed and to implement um, controls uh, where they're needed to address the ISO framework. Yep, and I guess just to summarize, put it in a neat little bow, you scope it out, you know what you're gonna audit, then we do the uh, current state assessment to identify any gaps in the program, put that in a nice project plan so we can, you know, remediate it, know what resources we need, uh, present it to management, and then we put pen to paper during program implementation to actually get it done. And that's when I always say, all right, we, we, we went through program implementation and, and we draw a line in the sand and we say, okay, we have a great program, we're ready to get certified. So what does certification look like? So certification itself is a, is a three-step process. Um, if you've been through audits before, ISO is probably a little bit different than say if your organizations went through a SOC 2 audit or a financial audit, and it is a three-step process and it's multi-year in nature. So similar to our process, we do uh, they do planning and scoping. Uh, if you've been through the implementation process, that's easy. You've already filled out those administrative documents, but essentially the auditor needs to know what the scope is. That's when the statement of applicability comes into play. That's when the application letter comes into play and we tell them this is what you need to audit. Then they break their audit up into two steps. There's a stage one audit and a stage two audit. The stage one audit is somewhere between a day and a week, depending on the size of your organization. Um, I, I call it the kick the tires audit. They're looking for policies, higher risk stuff. They're, they're trying to get comfort that you're ready for the big audit, which is the stage two audit. It's typically more light um, and, and it, it is just a, a level setting audit. And then in stage two, that's the full blown audit. That's when they will come in uh, and ask for you know, every single artifact. There's typically 100 to 150 audit artifacts that they'll be looking for. Um, most commonly, it's between one week and two weeks. That can vary a little bit if your organization is really large, if you're a large enterprise. Um, they'll typically do on-site audits at the key locations during this, so you can expect an auditor to visit there, and, and they'll go through it. Uh, again, that's, that's a pretty heavy lift. Um, we'll talk about timeline in a second, too, but um, a lot of time this is going to take about 60 days, not not of continuous auditing, but uh, scoping. They'll do stage one about 30 days later and about 30 days after that, they'll do stage two. So when you're thinking about your whole timeline, you have to you know build in you know 60 to 90 days for the audit itself before you have a certification in hand. So that's your your first year audit. And then years two and three, so ISO 27001 is a three-year audit cycle, so you have to commit to this uh, to maintain it for three years. Uh, then they do annual surveillance audits, years two and three, and that is about a, a half to a third of the effort of your first year. And they'll still come out on site, choose between one third and one half of the controls to test and go through the motions there, but it won't be a stage one and stage two. So that's kind of your, your certification uh, process. Anything, Sawyer, I know you've been through dozens of these on the receiving end of audits on behalf of our clients. Anything you want to talk about for the certification? Yeah, um, I think the main, the main takeaway that I've seen um, when it comes to the external certification process is the more detailed and committed that you are to the internal audit, the more organized that you are during the internal audit, um, which comes before the external audit because it's a requirement for certification, um, the better off you're going to be with the external uh, process. And, and so what I mean is, you know, you may have evidence that um, is somewhat complicated to collect, right? Maybe it's a, a 
you know, database administrator running a specific query on a specific, uh, you know, asset somewhere in the network to pull back a report that you can show to the auditor. Um, if you don't capture the details of like what that looks like um, and how you got that piece of evidence the first time around, um, it, it can be somewhat challenging and really inefficient to have to go back and, and uh, kind of recreate the wheel, so to speak. Um, and then on top of that, there's evidence that just simply doesn't change, right? So there's things that, um, you know, being able to easily reference the evidence that you submitted during the internal audit and see, oh, okay, that's what we, you know, that's 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 what we gather to address this control and to to speak to how we're doing this. Um, it, it it makes the external uh, audit and that uh, recollection of essentially a lot of the same uh, evidence very very efficient. Yeah, and people sometimes want to know like what to expect during an external audit. So what we typically do is do coaching and prep sessions ahead of the audit. So any stakeholders will be ready for that external audit. Um, but the bad news is external audits vary a fair amount. And, and that's because it's left up to the talent and the knowledge of the auditor itself. Sometimes you'll get a very reasonable, fantastic auditor with a lot of experience and they, they really understand the business model and how security is going to apply to that. And you'll have a really good experience. Sometimes you'll have someone with no experience. You know, they're they're right out of college. This is their first audit job. They uh, haven't learned some of the tools and tricks of doing good prep work ahead of an audit. So you really have to explain to them your business model, how security applies to that, and uh, help them translate the controls. And it can be a little bit frustrating because it feels like you shouldn't be ed educating the auditor. They should be educating you. But that's just the nature of the business. Um, and that's, that's how all our audits are. Um, so just expect a little bit of variability. Uh, there's some great firms out there that, that have less variability and there's some firms that contract all of their auditors out uh, and you have a wild amount of variability. Uh, so just heads up on that, what to expect to the audit. Um, let's talk about timeline uh, really quick. People always want to know how long is this going to take? My, my recommendation, and I think Saul, you would agree, we talked about this, is like probably a minimum of six months to get through implementation and then also the audit. Um, most some companies take a year. Um, we have a couple that were over a year, but typically six months to a year, you can get ready for an audit. If you want to be really aggressive about it, six months is a is a good timeline. Um, the I think the thing that people do not budget for is the audit itself that we talked about. So we can get through planning, current state assessment, remediation roadmap, and implementing usually in about four months. Um, sometimes a little longer if the organization is complex or, or you know there's other barriers to getting that done. But the audit itself is at least 60 days because you do your stage one and then within 30 days from that, 30 to 45 days, they'll do stage two. And then it's another 30 days until you actually get your certification in hand. And that's just because of the auditor's own QA processes and admin to get that report out. And this is pretty much dictated to them by those governance uh, organizations we talked about earlier, like ANAB and UCAS. So if you're putting a project plan together and making commitments to your board of directors or your customers about when something can get done, don't account for just how long it's going to take you to implement. Also consider that 60 days that it's going to take to get through the audit itself. All right, Sawyer, here, here we go. I'm going to rapid fire you now as we wrap this up because I know there's a lot of questions that people typically have and obviously I'll, I'll chime in here. And the one that's probably on everyone's mind is how much does ISO 27001 certification cost? Yeah, it, uh, it well, for one, it depends on the scope, depends on your company, how many locations you have, things like that. Um, but you're probably looking, um, you know, for the external piece, um, it, you know, anywhere from 25 to 75K. I mean, it depends, again, on the firm, on, you know, your scope. Yeah. Um, but that's looking at for the external piece. 
and there's a lot of marketplace variability just based on firm like outside of scope like you could have a huge scope or a small scope you know we always advise shopping around and finding a firm that has a fair price um, but also does really good work and there are firms that do that um, I, I wouldn't recommend going bottom of the barrel because your audit experience will reflect that um, also if you're feel like you're paying way too much maybe you don't need to there's some great middle ground firms in there that are, are fair prices we've seen them as low as like you said 10 grand and the audit experience is terrible uh, all the way up to hundreds of thousands of dollars because it's a really big organization so uh, that's a non-answer <laughs> I guess but it's widely variable I guess is the yeah. real answer uh, can I get certified if I have gaps yes absolutely um, there is a framework and a process in place that facilitates this um, no program is perfect um, it, it simply can't be. That's the nature of risk itself. Um, by doing business, we we inherently have uh, risk that we take on. Um, but if you're going to get certified, these gaps must go through the appropriate uh, processes and documentation uh, to make sure that these gaps are clearly documented, um, they're acknowledged, and that you have um, you know appropriate treatment plans in place. Great. Uh, what is the difference between a risk assessment and a gap assessment? Yeah, gap assessment is focused uh, specifically on the ISO controls. Um, it's really looking at, um, you know, are there gaps in the operations of the business in terms of how we're addressing these specific list of controls in the ISO framework. Um, a risk assessment is something where you really zoom out as a business and you look at things uh, from a much higher view. Um, and, and, and the goal of a risk assessment is to uncover not just information security, but business risk in general. Um, things like, you know, we're, we're, thinking about pursuing business in a, a new market. You know, maybe we're, we're looking to move into the EU um, and, and uh, chase down some customers out there. Um, well, that, that comes with a whole bucket of risk, right? If, uh, if you've heard of GDPR, um, any of the, the uh, privacy uh, concerns out there, then uh, you know that there's a lot to think about there. So a risk assessment um, is focused on uh, uncovering the business risk in general and putting together uh, the appropriate framework for the leadership of the business to come together um, have the appropriate discussions, rank these, um, and determine uh, what's most important and most reasonable to address, um, and really put plans down on paper of how to address those risks as a whole, and not just the simply the information security gaps for myself. Yeah, um, we have seen organizations, uh, you know, go through the certification process really confident, and then hand over a gap assessment to the auditor, saying we did a risk assessment, and the auditor says this isn't a risk assessment. And they get a nonconformity, and that can be frustrating. Um, we'll point people back to ISO 27005 or NIST 830. Those are fantastic resources to really dive into what a risk assessment is. Uh, so, what if I'm in the cloud? Can I get certified? How does that impact my certification? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that you know that, that changes the picture a little bit, but not as much as you might think. Um, there's still a great number of controls that you are operating both within your office environment. Um, you know, again, back to assets, thinking about access control, um, all of there, there are so many controls that you're still going to be responsible for. And even in the cloud, right? If you're in AWS, um, you know, they give you an instance of AWS, but it's your responsibility in most cases, unless you've contracted this out uh, to manage the, um, you know, IAM profiles there, making sure that um, the appropriate people have appropriate levels of access there. Um, you still have to set up things like uh, logging. You still have to make sure that um, you know you're looking for uh, intrusion detection. Um, there, there, there's so much that you're still going to be responsible for. So um, you can absolutely get certified, and it does change the picture a little bit. But again, it's it's not quite as much as you might think. 
All right, I'm going to start skipping around here for the sake of time, but I do want to cover this next one. Uh, what if everyone is remote? Yeah, I actually have a client if that's the case. Um, it's still very possible. Um, that's where that statement of applicability comes into play. Um, there are going to be certain controls that aren't applicable because you don't maintain an office environment. Uh, but again, there's going to be a hyper focus on some other controls because your employees are remote. Um, so you can't you know, depend on simply the uh, network security of your office. Um, you're going to have to make sure that those assets are um, locked down and, and uh, secure. Yep. Here's a good one. What if I outsource development? Yep, uh, a lot of companies do this. Um, they they have development in-house and then they also supplement development through outsource development. Um, there's a control that's specifically focused on that. Um, it's it, it's absolutely uh, still uh, feasible to get certified with outsource development. Um, it's just, again, it, it's focusing on making sure that those supplier relationships um, and those contracts are appropriately written. Um, and that you're managing, you know, the assets and the, the processes that those outsourced developers are leveraging to contribute to your product um, in a way that uh, fits with ISO and is as secure as your in-house development team. All right, let's do two more. So what does the certification look like? So at the end of the day, the certification uh, is, is essentially, a, it's a nice, neat one-pager that uh, has the a signature of the firm that uh, took you through the process and, and performed your external audit and certification. Um, it basically says that uh, you as a business are certified against the ISO 27001 framework. Yep. Yeah, I, I, to point out that a lot of people have seen SOC 2 reports, which are 150 pages of detail, whereas ISO certification at the end of the day is a one pager. It says the scope of your audit and it says uh, that you are certified. So a little less detail, but uh, I think still meaningful. And then we'll do this for the last one. What about privacy? Because obviously with GDPR, CCPA, people are looking towards, you know, different frameworks. Um, what's the deal there? Yeah, so ISO 27001 um, is really the, the fundamental building block for the uh, 27,701, so 27701 uh, framework that ISO just released this year. Um, that it's a tack on to 27,001 because really you need that that management system in place and those uh, reasonable safeguards um, in place for MISO 27,001. And then from that, you can you can build on top of it um, the 27,701 uh, framework, which is all very specifically um, focused on privacy. Yep. Phil, who is our uh, fellow in privacy uh, specializes in 27701 in the privacy, will actually be doing a webinar uh, over that framework on top of this webinar um, to talk a little bit about that soon. So great. So let's talk about some resources uh, if people want to learn more, because obviously there's a lot of questions. Uh, one is our blog. You can go there and, and click on the ISO 27001 category. We write blogs every single week that answer specific questions about uh, ISO 27001 and other security and compliance topics that get really deep. Um, the other place that you can uh, go is our white papers. Um, we have uh, detailed framework breakouts for 27001. So if you're trying to make a business case internally and want to know why ISO is valuable, we have that. If you want to uh, know about the framework and some human readable format, like I talked about earlier, we have a part two. And we also have part three, so those white papers that talk about the certification process in detail. So that package is pretty much everything that you would need to know to know how to you know, begin your journey when it comes to ISO. 
Uh, you can also contact Sawyer. We have our email addresses up there. You can contact myself. Uh, and then we have some links there to those blogs and white papers and also to ANAB itself if you want to visit their website and see who the authorized certifying bodies are out there and, and grab information from them. Um, so I hope everyone got a lot out of this and appreciate your time. Thank you, Sawyer, for sharing your knowledge and uh, look forward to the next time. Yep. See you guys.